Hey, this is Larry Rollins, pastor of The Well Church, and thank you so much for listening to The Well Church's podcast. My hope is that this message aids you to be restored by the gospel. If you'd like to support the work that our church is doing, please visit our website, thewellmonroe.com, and click Give. Your gift, regardless of how large or small, helps us bring restoration by the gospel to broken people. So, enjoy this episode, and don't forget to subscribe. Say it like you need to convince yourself. Go ahead. Come on, you need to convince your mind that it's his kingdom. My God, you need to convince your heart that it all belongs to him. Say your Come on, right there, give God praise this morning. Come on. Lift your voice, clap your hands, stomp your feet. He's worthy to be praised this morning. Hallelujah. God, we thank you for your presence this morning. God, we know that you're present every day with us. You're present in us. God, we thank you. And I pray, God, the words of the songs will ring true in our hearts today. That our life will be for your kingdom and for your glory, for your honor, for your will. Lord, it will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's our prayer today, God. That's our prayer today, God, that your will be done in our life. Not our will, your will. Lord, if it's your will, let it be so. That means I got to end some bad relationships. Lord, let it be so if that's your will. Lord, if I got to quit a job, if that's your will, let it be done. Lord, if I have to suffer, if that's your will, let it be done. If diabetes is my lot in life, if that's your will, Lord, let it be done. Lord, if anxiety is something that you've called me to suffer through, let your will be done. Pray this in Jesus' name. God bless your word this morning. God, we've been able to sing to you. We've been able to talk to you this morning. Now we pray that you'll speak to us, that we can hear from you, and that there will be nothing blocking us from that. Have your way. 
God, I pray that as I stand before your people, none of me be seen but all of you. And that as I decrease, your spirit will increase in me. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated in the presence of the Lord. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 28, verse 16. I got real churchy in that moment. Matthew 28 is where we'll be at this morning. We're going to start at verse 16. And we are in our DNA series where we are walking through the aims of our church. Who are we as the well church? And so to my right is our uh, DNA banner, and it says, Encounter Christ, Existing Family, Engage the Broken. In fact, today is the part three where we talk about what it means to engage the broken. Engaging the broken means to make disciples where brokenness exists. And so we're going to dig into that this morning. Matthew chapter 28, starting at verse 16. You can go to the title slide. There you go. So, um, Matthew 28, 16 through 20. Uh, if you're using one of our Bibles, there are Bibles under the seats for you. If you don't have one, uh, page 546 is what is on in that Bible. Also, if you don't have a Bible, you don't own a Bible that you can understand, consider that Bible a gift from us to you. Matthew 28, 16 through 20, we read from the Christian Standard Bible. And if you're there, you'll find these words. The 11 disciples traveled to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. Jesus came near and said to them, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Word of the Lord. Typically, what happens after you graduate high school or college, uh, you get a question. And the question is, what are you going to do next? It never fails. Someone is going to ask you the question, and in most cases, you get asked the question multiple times. What are you going to do next? What are you going to do now that you finish high school? What are you going to do now since you finished college? And if we'll be honest, not all of us have had a robust answer to that question. Some of us had no clue what we were going to do. If we were coming out of high school and we were potentially going to college, we may have not had any clue of what major we were going to have, what field of study. And even if we had decided on that, we probably didn't know what we wanted to do with those things. I know for me, I had a very neat packaged answer to give people, but the reality is I had no clue. I think most Christians in their life walk around with that same complex where they give their life to Jesus. They have an incredible encounter with him. They are changed by the gospel, but they don't know what to do next. And they try to figure it out. You know, they, they walk through the motions. They'll go to this church and, you know, they might 
depending on how radical that transformation is, they'll probably start going to prayer meeting and they'll go to Bible study and they'll go to every Bible study that they can find in the city, right, when, when you first encounter Christ because you want more of him, but you really don't know what you're supposed to be doing. You don't understand your purpose. This morning, I believe our text uh, gives us clarity on after we're saved, what do we do? I'm saved now. What? And it's very clear in the scriptures that our mission, a disciple's mission, is to make other disciples. Quite honestly, I, I can't in all of my uh, salvation history, if you will, uh, been kind of sort of saved for a long time, right? Um, got baptized at six years old. Wouldn't say that I came to a full understanding of God at six, uh, but there was definitely evidence of God's hand on my life. At the age of six, my mom would find me five years old, uh, praying and rebuking Satan not to take her life. So I, I grew up in church all of my life, uh, been in various different types of churches. Uh, but, but any of those milestones, I cannot recall someone saying to me, Larry, you need to go make disciples now. In, in fact, I, I would love to take a poll uh, this morning, I won't take the poll, but I would love to see what the numbers would look like in this room that you were told specifically after you gave your life to Christ that you need to go make disciples. Some of you may have been told to invite other people to church, to tell people about what God has done for you. But I just, I can't remember an experience, even among my friends, where we were told our mission, our responsibility, now that you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you need to make disciples. And that's our mission. A disciples' mission is to make other disciples. Let's look at the text. In the scriptures, we see that Jesus has called a meeting with his 12 disciples. By the way, let me give you a quick disclaimer. I've been coming, uh, overcoming crud all week. And so if I feel a coughing spell, we're just going to let it roll, all right? And we're going to get it. I ain't going to try to be cute for y'all. be like, oh, <clears throat> nope. We're going to get it out, and we're going to keep preaching. Sounds good? All right. Y'all just act like it ain't happening. Y'all ready to go round one? Because I got one in my shundo. Right? So, excuse me. Man, that was actually polite in comparison to what I thought was about to happen. We'll edit that part out, man. And so Jesus uh, calls a meeting with his 11 disciples because Judas took his own life. And so now... There are 11 disciples. Jesus has a meeting with them on, the, on a particular mountain that is not specified in the scriptures in Galilee. And as he calls them uh, to this mountain, Jesus has resurrected from the dead, right? He's been killed and crucified uh, by the Roman soldiers, uh, initiated by the chief priests and scribes. And so Jesus has been crucified on the cross. He's been buried. He's resurrected on the third day and has made himself a present to uh, many different people. Uh, so that they can know that he is resurrected from the dead. And so in, in the course of Jesus presenting himself to all of these individuals, he calls a meeting with his disciples, and they meet with him at this particular mountain. And Jesus is going to give them what uh, Christians have historically known as the Great Commission. And so when he gets there, the 11 shows up, and the Bible tells us that some of them, they worshiped him, but some doubted thought this was interesting that uh, these individuals have seen Jesus resurrected from the dead. Uh, I, I would assume that even the event where Thomas got to put his hand in Jesus' side, uh, they, they're very much aware that Jesus has resurrected from the dead. Well, this word for doubt is 
is probably better understood as hesitated. Because Jesus in his uh, a transformed, resurrected body probably doesn't look the same as he did before, before he died. Because when we die, God raises us from the dead. We get a new body that is not prone to sin, that's not prone to sickness. And we could probably safely assume that that body does not look the exact same, even though it is a human body, nevertheless. They kind of hesitated. And so what, would Je- what did Jesus do? I love this. I don't want to make too much of it, but I love this. In their hesitation, what he does is he comes near. He comes near to them as they are hesitant that he is who he is. And I love that reality for us is that when we find ourselves distant or doubting God, we have two options. We can allow him to come near or we can create more distance between us. So Jesus comes near and he speaks these words, which I think gives us the the unction and the reality for everything else to happen. So nothing else can happen unless these three, the, these, this next sentence that Jesus utters is true. And what Jesus says is, when he comes near to his disciples, he says, all authority on heaven and in earth has been given unto me. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This word, authority, exousia is the Greek word. And in in the secular sense, the word denotes the ability to perform an action. It is the, the right authority or permission conferred by a higher court. And God ultimately is the source of authority. He's the ultimate source of authority. And what we'll see in scriptures is that God has the right and reserves the right to issue and deal out this authority as he sees fit. This this power, this this authority, this permission, uh, uh, God gives people, human beings, and so on and so forth, the right. We see it in verse uh, uh, Romans chapter 13, verse 1, the scripture's on the screen. It says, let everyone submit to the governing authorities, since there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are instituted by God. What Romans lets us see is that all authority ultimately belongs to God, and he reserves the right to deal out that authority. So these governments that are in power are only in power because he has allowed them to be in power. They only exist because he's allowed them to exist. And they only hold the authority that they have because he allowed it to. Now, there are some, the reality, there are some governments that do not operate in a means that are uh, congruent with the will of God. I believe on Judgment Day, they'll have to pay for that. They'll have to answer for that. But these entities were set up by God so that they can rule over the people properly. Nevertheless, he gives the governments the authority. He even tells Pontius Pilate when Pontius has the right to uh, uh, crucify him and let him free, Jesus explains the only authority you have is that that was given to you by my father. He also gives authority to angels, and we see that in the Old Testament. And he gives authority to human beings. But ultimately, this power, this authority belongs to God. 
And so, and, and, and there are, are elements of God's authority that he only reserves for himself. Like the power to forgive sins. God reserves that only for himself. Or even, as Jesus would say, don't fear the man who can take your body, but fear the one who can destroy both body and soul. See, God reserves the right that only he can destroy a soul. And so now when Jesus steps on the scene, he says, all authority has been given to me. All authority has been given to him. Now, you, if you're a good Trinitarian and you, you believe that God is one God who exists in three distinct persons, which is orthodox, proper Christian views on the Trinity, then you're wondering if God and Jesus are one, then how has he been given authority? Shouldn't he have already had that authority? Well, the reality is, is that Jesus existed as God eternally, but he came as a human on earth. And so now he's the God-man. At one time, he was just God, and eternity is past. But now in eternity is present, he is God-man. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He is physically manifest, manifested on earth. And so Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. And this is important because God cannot repay the sins of uh, uh, Jesus, cannot atone for the sins of man unless he is a man. Why? Because man sinned against God. Therefore, man had to pay the punishment, but there was no man righteous enough to bear that punishment. So God himself became man so that he could bear that punishment. And so now Jesus, the God-man, has all authority, which is why Jesus can say, I can forgive sins. Now, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the other religious rulers in the scriptures took issue with Jesus saying that because they didn't believe that Jesus is God. But because Jesus is God, he has the authority to do what only God can do, which is forgive sins. Let me come into your room now. Because Jesus has all authority on he in heaven and on earth, simply put, first point, he's in charge. He's in charge. Jesus is in charge. What God has done now is that Jesus, God the Son, took a subservient role, even though they're equal, and now God has elevated Jesus to the position, the God-man, as being in charge, which means he's in charge over everything in the spiritual realm, and he's in charge on everything in the natural realm. He's in charge. And now, our response to that is to live as such that he's in charge. So I got to ask a question. Would be a good pastor if I didn't. Is Jesus really in charge for you? Because the scripture clearly says that he's in charge of everything in heaven and on earth. He has the authority and the power that has been given to him from God the Father. And he earned the right. He earned the right to be in charge in your life. But is he? And are we living our lives? In such a way that Jesus is in charge. 
do we make our decisions as though he's in charge? Do we interact with people as if Jesus is in charge? He says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. He's in charge. And because he's in charge, as believers, we now have the mandate and the responsibility to follow these next words, which is, go, therefore, and make disciples. Anytime you see the word therefore in the scriptures, you got to ask the question, what is it there for? And it's connecting the, the reality that Jesus is in charge to our response, which is to go and make disciples. There are three participles in this passage of scripture, and there's one verb. The one main verb in the passage is make disciples. The participles are go, baptize, and teach. The participles are, are supporting the main verb, which is make disciples. And so when the scripture tells us, it says, go and make disciples, it is saying to us that we have to be uh, uh, not stationary, but moving in our lives. So as you are going, as you're going about your life, in that process of life, you are making disciples. The best way I could put it is that you need to make disciples where? Where you live, where you work, and where you play. Because that's where you go in your life, don't you? You go to work. You go home. You hang out with your friends. Right? Where you live, work, and play, all are places that you should be actively making disciples. Now, I want to dig into what it means to make disciples. I believe there's two categories in the scriptures that we can kind of divide discipleship in, and then we'll give some practical stuff at the end. First one is, is that we have to win others to a new identity in Christ. We have to win others to a new identity in Christ. Jesus says, go, therefore, make disciples. Go, participle, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's your second participle. Baptizing, and, and I'm going to pretend that you don't really know what baptism is. Baptism is, is when an individual is immersed in the water. They go down, and we've seen it in different ways. You could do it in a horse trough. You could do it in a river. You can do it in a traditional Baptist tree. All of those are options. This person, they go down in the water, they come back up. This baptism is symbolic. And what it symbolizes, it symbolizes the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That when an individual goes down into the water, they, they, they are representing Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. And when that individual comes back up from the water, they are symbolizing the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that also means something symbolic for you. That when you go down, the, the old you dies to your sins, and when you come up, the new you lives. This is a means of identifying with Jesus Christ. Just we talked in our uh, previous passages uh, through our series that, that we identify with the death of Jesus Christ and we also identify with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so what, what, uh, what we're seeing in the scriptures is a change of identity. That we are not who we used to be. And we are to win others to that new identity. Baptism is very much like a baby shower. Baptism is an outward expression of an inward change. 
It's an outward expression of an inward change. So when an individual, uh, uh, when, when a, a mom is pregnant with a baby, something has changed on the inside, right? And we celebrate that change by throwing a, bap- uh, 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 a baby shower. We do the balloons and the cake and the games. Now, if she was not pregnant, it would be improper for us to throw a baby shower. If there was no expectation of a child. In, in the same way, it would be improper to us to be baptized if God had not changed us on the inside. Some of us, we got baptized because grandma pinched us and told us to sit in that chair. Some of us did it because we wanted to drink the juice. I was being shaded towards Carr and he didn't even notice it. Some of us do it because we thought it'd be cool to get in the water. We saw some other folks do it, so we wanted to do it. And even more seriously, some of us have done it because we thought if we hit that water and we go down and come up, something would be different about ourselves. But baptism isn't what changes you. It's Jesus. Jesus does the changing. He does the transforming. And so some of us, and, and I, I don't mean, including myself, have gotten baptized in the wrong order. We've gotten baptized in the wrong order. And we need to fix that. I would encourage you to fix that. Some of our family, we've had those conversations. They're going to fix it. If you want to do that, fill out a connect card, check baptism. We can talk more about it. But this baptism, what is doing, what, what the scripture is teaching us is that we need to win others, not to a behavioral change, but to an identity change. And we win them to this new identity by sharing the gospel. That's the only way it's going to happen. People are not going to come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior unless we share the gospel with him. Here's what Romans 10, 14 through 15 says. How then can they call on them that they have call on him that they have not believed in? And how can they believe in him without hearing about him? And how can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Now, this word preach, a lot of us, we probably like, I ain't no preacher. It just simply means to declare the good news of Jesus Christ. We are all called to declare the good news of Jesus Christ. In fact, regardless of what your feet look like, the Bible says your feet are beautiful if you are declaring the good news of Jesus Christ. But people cannot believe on Jesus Christ, and this is the the paradigm that God has set it up in, unless you share the good news of Jesus. And so in order to make disciples, you have to win others to Jesus. You have to share the gospel with people so that they can believe. That's why every third Sunday of the month, our churches set aside time to corporately go into the neighborhood and share the gospel. You are welcome to participate in that next Sunday. And we make it easy for you. And we'll send you with a partner. We won't send you by yourself to do it. In fact, you cannot say anything at all and just get an experience. But we want you to be obedient to the scriptures to make disciples, and that requires you to go and share your faith. Second thing we see in the scriptures that, that needs to happen is that we need to raise them to maturity in Christ. Let's look at verse 
20, it says, teach them to observe everything I have commanded you, and remember I am with you always to the end of the age. A very key element of discipleship is that an individual grows in Christian maturity. A lot of times we think the process is done. If we can get somebody to make a profession and to come to know the Lord, that's all the work we need to do. And a lot of times we don't take it to the next step. If, if you stopped at just believing in Jesus Christ, your life is probably still going to be a hot mess to express. Because you not only need the God of salvation, you need the God of wisdom. You need to be moved in your life from foolishness to wisdom, and that happens in the process of discipleship, you growing in Christian maturity. So here's what the scripture says. It says, teach them to observe all that I've commanded. This word observe is simply obey. Teach them to obey everything that I've commanded. And this, is, this may be a paradigm shift for you because it was for me. He's not telling us to teach the commandments. He's telling us to teach to obey the commandments. Ooh, that's a difference. There's one thing to know that I should love my neighbor as myself. It's one thing to know that this is the will of God, that I will not uh, uh, use my body in sexual immoral ways, but I'll be sanctified and pure. It's one thing to know that. It's another thing to live it. It's one thing to know to let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only that which builds others up according to their needs. It's another thing to live it. And so what we need to teach each other is to obey the commandments. And that is, that is the true uh, uh, inkling of, of Christian maturity, is that you can be obedient to the scriptures, not in your own strength, through the power of the Holy Spirit, but that you're obedient. And so we have the responsibility to raise them up in maturity in Christ. Let's get practical. Because what we're talking about is discipleship. And discipleship is the only ministry that we're partaking in this church. We don't have a choir ministry and a women's ministry and a men's ministry and an evangelism ministry and social justice ministry and et cetera, et cetera. We have a discipleship ministry. And everything we do is centered around making disciples. Every single system in our church is so that you can make disciples. That's it. And if it's not making disciples, we don't want nothing to do with it. Trying not to get on a high horse. <laughs> we have to be careful that when, when we're connecting to church, all we want to do is be a part of a ministry. And we have a lot of ministries, but no discipleship. What good is to have 40 ministries on your program? All right, I'm going to chill. I'm a, no, I'm going to chill. I'm going to chill. We, we need to be discipling individuals. And here, here uh, Dr. Uh, uh, Dehati Lewis, I had a chance to train with him for eight months, me and my wife. And uh, he has a book called Among Wolves. And in the book, he breaks up discipleship in four main components. I think this is important for us as we understand discipleship. And we need to know that there's a difference between discipleship and mentorship. Mentorship is that I know everything. You sit under me and I teach you what I know. But that's not discipleship. Discipleship are 
I believe, are best categorized in these four components. The first one is life on life. That means that if you are to disciple someone or someone is to disciple you, then you have to be entwined with each other's life. That they need to be in the messiness of your life and you need to be in the messiness of their lives. That they get to see every part of your life. They need to be present in it. And we, we have this, this thing in our mind where we only want people to see snapshots. You know, we want an Instagram life where you get to see the highs, but you don't get to see the lows. And that's not discipleship. It's not discipleship. Discipleship lets an individual into your life. Here's an example of it. One of the things that I do, if you've, has anybody ever went to a restaurant and eaten with me before by a show of hands? All right, cool. Great you would know that there's one thing I do just about every time I go to the restaurant. I look at my waitress, and I ask her, is there anything I can pray for you about? We're about to bless our food. Can we pray for you for anything? When I do that, the people who are at the table get to look into my life. Guess what? That did not originate with me. I sat down with a man who was concerned about me living pure for Jesus, and I was impressed by how he loved his waitress by asking, could he pray for her? I'll give you another example, life on life. One thing you might have heard me say before is if I've gotten any type of compliment, especially as it regards ministry, my response is to God be the glory. You've heard me say that. Now, I didn't originate that. When I started doing that, it's because a man who was discipling me, he would say it. Every single time someone would compliment him, he would say, to God be the glory. And I started saying it for a particular reason. I wanted to remind myself that the glory does belong to God. It's not mine. And also to remind the person that what you experience is because of the glory of God. So here's a really cool moment. One day, I was sitting uh, in my office with Carl. And Carl got a text message about some college stuff, and this uh, uh, um, he, he was going to get some assistance, some assistance that he needed. And the person in the text message, because I, I, I couldn't help myself, the person in the text message had texted him and said that you are an awesome young man. God has really favored you. And Carl's response to that text was, to God be the glory. <laughs> Y'all, I really could shout, like, for real. His response to the text message was, to God be the glory. I never said, Carl, when people compliment you, when people celebrate you, you tell them, to God be the glory. No, he got to be a part of my life. That's how I live for Jesus. He gets to see some ugly stuff. He gets to see some frustrations and some disappointments. And I let him in on that. That's life on life. That's discipleship. Not putting on that people can think we're super holy and we really know Jesus and we're really mature. It's life on life. Second component, theological training. What this means is, and it sounds fancy, but it's really simply, we need to grow in our understanding of God and who he is and specifically the gospel. That what we want to do is we want to become gospel fluent. Just like Aaron can speak Spanish, I can speak Ebonics. We want to be fluent in the gospel in the same way. 
So when we communicate the gospel, we need to be not just being able to communicate it in an eloquent presentation, but to be able to understand it in such a way that we know how it applies to our lives in various situations. And you have to train people up to do that. That's why if you become a member of our church, we make sure on the front end that you know how to share the gospel. Because you need to understand the gospel. That's why we share the gospel regularly, because that needs to be a part of our lives so that we can continue to critically think about the gospel. And I think, and I think both ends, we've gotten it wrong. In some cases, we don't trust in God's spirit enough. And in other cases, we don't do the work ourselves like we should. And we don't critically think about the faith like we should. It's not all just spiritual. It's also intellectual. So you need to critically think about what the gospel is and how it applies to your life. Intentionally. So we need theological training, which means we need to grow in our understanding of the gospel, how we communicate the gospel, and how it applies to our lives. Thirdly, we need leadership development. The gospel is very much holistic. Right? It is not just about your spiritual condition. It's about your spiritual, your emotional, your economical, and your social. The gospel has something to say about your finances. The gospel has something to say about your relationships, whether they're dating or whether they're platonic. The gospel has something to say about that. The gospel has something to say about your emotional health. It has something to say about your anger or your depression or anxiety, your loneliness, your fear. The gospel is holistic. And so when it comes to discipling an individual or discipling people, we need leadership development. That means that we're growing as a person. And we're growing in those those seeds, spiritual, emotional, economical, and social, and we're helping individuals. So when, when I bring someone in my life or you bring someone in their life, you know, uh, for example, anytime I've, I've had uh, uh, kids over, I make them help me cook the meal. That's leadership development. So if Carl's little sister don't know how to do anything, she know how to chop some vegetables. And all of that is a part of discipleship. That we're training them up to be self-sufficient. And lastly, mobilization. There's a quote from a pastor, I can't remember the pastor's name. But his quote is, is that you never teach an individual, that's not the one, you never teach an individual anything about the Bible until you first teach them to share their faith. Because when you learn a whole bunch of stuff in the Bible, you just get arrogant. But when you start sharing the gospel, you understand that these high theological concepts need to be practical to people. So it's good that you know that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and resurrected from the dead on the third day. But what does that mean? Why is that important to anybody? And we need to know that. And you start to learn that really fast on on the job training when you got to share your faith with somebody and they ask you a question. You're like, I don't really know what to say to that. And some of us are worried about that, and that's because you don't do it enough 
And the more you do it, the more you'll be in predicaments where you need to think through critically, how do I answer some of these questions? And that comes with experience. They don't come because you read a book and it gives you all the answers. So we need to, as we're discipling, we need to send people out to share their faith. All of these are important components of making disciples. Here's what I want you to know about discipleship. Dr. Lewis gives a quote, and he kind of fandangles an African proverb and says, if it, it takes a village to raise a child. He says, if it takes a village to raise a child, then it takes a church to raise a Christian. Discipleship is not something that you do with one individual. Discipleship is something that we do together. We all have the responsibility to raise each other up in the faith. We all have the responsibility to be in each other's lives, to help each other grow in Christian maturity, to be obedient to the scriptures. And that's discipleship. And we want to make sure that that is the only thing that our church is about. Making disciples. God has called us to that. Amen? Amen. So my question to you as we conclude, who are you discipling? Who are you discipling? And who's discipling you? Can you identify people in your life that are living out these components. And, and here's the thing. They don't all need to do all of these things. You don't have to get all four components from one person. But the best place to do that is in the church. And I'm a big proponent of the local church. If you hadn't been able to tell in all of these messages, I am pro-church. I am pro you being connected to a local church. I know you may have some experiences that may not have been so pleasant in the local church, but that is not representative of every church and is also not representative of what God wants to do through the local church. We had this really bad habit, and I'm going to just say in the African-American community for now, but it goes abroad. We have this really bad habit of letting people tell us about Jesus and not seeing Jesus for ourselves and what the scriptures has to say about what the church is supposed to look like. And so who's discipling you? And who are you discipling? And if you can't identify individuals, I would encourage you to get connected to a local church. And you might be a person who Christ is not being in charge. And if that's you, then I want to encourage you to make that decision today. That if you have not allowed Jesus Christ to be in charge in your life, I would challenge you to do that. The Bible says that he has all authority. He's in charge. He's in control. He calls the shots. And here's the promise that he makes. He promises to always be with you. How does he do that? When you give your life to Jesus, 
the Bible says that you are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. God imparts his spirit on you, and that spirit will guide you and walk with you and lead you and comfort you and be present with you every step of the way. But you can't have his spirit unless you acknowledge him as your Lord. Two things you need to do, the Bible says, you need to turn away from your sins. You need to repent. You are a sinner. You need to be saved. Second thing the Bible tells us we need to do is believe. That word believe means to place your trust in someone else. And who you're placing your trust in, you're placing your trust in Jesus and the fact that he died on the cross in your place for your sins, was buried and resurrected from the dead to give you a new life that you couldn't have without him. You're trusting in that. You're trusting in him and what he's did to save you. And if that's you today, and you want to place your trust in Jesus, my sister Angelica is going to be at the table to have a conversation with you about that. So we're going to stand and sing one more song and let God minister to our hearts and deal with what he's shared with us. And then we'll come get some of my final instructions.